TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women, with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest is a doctor, but she's not just any doctor. She's a respected leader and true pioneer in the health and wellness industry. Struck down with MS in the prime of her life, her condition deteriorated to the point where she was wheelchair bound. When conventional medicine failed to arrest the progress of the disease and when she was given little hope for recovery, she began to explore other alternatives, as you would, including diet and supplements. She experimented with a strict regime which centred around a paleo meal plan and the turnaround was nothing short of miraculous and so the Walls Protocol was born. This protocol has gone on to help thousands upon thousands of people all over the world and to help people to heal from chronic illness. So it's my very, very great honour and it's an absolute privilege to welcome to the show the legend that is Dr. Terry Walls. Woo! Hey, thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you here today. I know you're coming to Australia soon and I will get to see you in person. Uh, So it's really, really great to have this chat ahead of time. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Yay. Now, for those of our listeners who've been, I don't know, hiding under a rock and who aren't familiar with your work, uh, maybe they haven't read your books or seen your TED Talk, can you please tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be working as an autoimmune crusader? So I am an academic internal medicine uh, doc working at the University of Iowa. And, you know, at that time, I was very skeptical about uh, alternative medicine, diet therapy, supplements. I thought they were a bunch of hooey and were a waste of money. Uh, But, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Uh, In 2000, I I developed weakness in my left leg uh, and was evaluated. Uh, including MRI, spinal taps, um, and a variety of blood tests, uh, which came back showing lesions in my spinal cord, abnormal spinal fluid, and a diagnosis of relapsing remitting MS or multiple sclerosis was made. Now, I knew that uh, MS is a progressive disease that within 10 years, one half of all people diagnosed will be uh, unable to work due to severe fatigue, and a third will have difficulty uh, walking. Uh, and so I, I wanted to treat my disease very aggressively. I uh, did some research, found out the best MS center that was doing research. I went there, saw their best people, took the newest drugs. Uh, and still within three years, I needed a tilt-reclined wheelchair. Uh, and things were getting progressively uh, worse. Uh, I was switched over to this new drug, Tizabri. Uh, and we're all very excited about that. I continue to get worse. I was switched to a, a different disease-modifying drug, Salcept. I continued to get worse. Uh, as I declined, I had been introduced to uh, the paleo diet. Uh, and so after 20 years of being a vegetarian, I had switched to that. I would continued to decline. I uh, decided to start reading uh, the this basic science literature myself, uh, searching you know, using PubMed.gov, and was reading about... Uh, the mouse models for MS, for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, uh, ALS, and would begin experimenting using vitamins and supplements to boost my mitochondria. 
And I, I eventually figured out these supplements were helpful. They helped with fatigue, but I was still declining. So they certainly were not recovering me. In the summer of 2007, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I took their course on uh, functional medicine in the setting of neurological disease, and which deepened my understanding of things that I could do. And I had a longer list of supplements. Uh, and I still, you know, uh, was not recovering. Uh, but then I had a, a really uh, big aha moment in that, I thought, you know, maybe I should redesign my paleo diet to maximize the intake of these nutrients that I was taking in supplement form. So uh, that was more research. uh, And the Linus Pauling uh, Institute for Micronutrients was very helpful. And so I redesigned my diet uh, at the very end of 2007. Now, to keep in mind, at 2007, I could not sit up in a regular chair. I had to either be in bed or in a... A recliner where I could recline and have my knees higher than my nose. I could walk short distances using two walking sticks, like 10 meters. Uh, I was beginning to have brain fog. I was having more and more difficulty with severe, uncontrolled um, MS-related pain. That's where I was at at the end of 2007. I start this uh, uh, structured uh, diet. Uh, some targeted supplements, uh, and three months later, I'm beginning to walk uh, with my walking sticks uh, at the at the VA hospital where I worked. Uh, six months later, I'm able to walk around the hospital without my walking sticks. Nine months later, I um, and I, and what you what you may not realize is I'm I'm crying as I speak now because this is such mm-hmm. uh, an emotional uh, recollection. I get on my bike, and I bike around the block for the first time uh, in six years. I'm crying. My two kids are crying. My wife's crying. Uh, At that moment, because, you see, my physicians, my neurology doctors, my primary care doctors had always told me that progressive MS functions once lost are gone forever. There's no spontaneous recovery. And so I had not, and I, I never thought I'd, I'd be biking again. Uh, and this really uh, transformed my understanding of disease and health. It changed how I practiced medicine. Uh, you know, at, at a year into my recovery, I'm able to do a 20-mile bike ride uh, with my family. <laughs> uh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, the chair of medicine uh, calls me in and uh, gives me the task of, getting a case report published because he says this is such a remarkable uh, thing that has happened. Uh, and then once I've got that published, he calls me back and says, now I want you to change the focus of your research uh, and uh, do a safety and feasibility study to see could other people implement what you did. And if they do, you know, is it safe and what happens? Um, so we, it takes us a year to get that protocol written up. Uh, and I have to go secure $100,000 worth of funding so we can do it. Uh, so that, you know, it takes uh, some effort to do. And my um, research program uh, is launched. Wow. Wow. And then how long from then till you came out with the protocol that you published as your book? So in uh, 2000, 
2010, uh, at the fall of 2010, we had uh, started the uh, 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 pilot uh, program. In 2011, I was uh, had the opportunity to give my uh, talk, the TEDx talk that is, uh, has uh, basically 3 million views. In 2014, uh, my book came out, um, and our uh, first paper uh, with our pilot uh, study uh, was published as well. Uh, we've since had you know some follow-up pilot studies uh, published, uh, and we have uh, well three of the studies that we've done, uh, and now we're our, uh, we have a national multiple sclerosis society. Uh, funded study that's comparing the low saturated fat diet uh, and the walls diet, what we call a parallel group design. Ah, awesome, awesome. So, so great stuff is uh, really marvelous stuff has been happening. And, and you know, I, I was just telling uh, uh, Jackie when we were having dinner uh, that you know it's it's so remarkable because in you know eleven years ago, we we both thought we we knew the future that we were facing that was very uh challenging given my my steady decline uh the uncontrolled pain and the developing brain fog uh but of course you know <clears throat> 11 years later you know i'm writing books i'm lecturing around the world i have a great research program uh and so you know remarkable things can happen when we realize just how powerful diet and lifestyle choices can be. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been almost a 20-year journey because you said the weakness in the left leg started in around 2000, but surely the process of developing MS was happening long before that weakness in the leg was happening. So what, what were the warning signs that you ignored along the way before you were diagnosed? Well, uh, during medical school, I had episodes of electrical face pain, either on the right side of my face or the left side of my face, uh, that would be troublesome for a few days, and then it would disappear. Um, I could tell that they were worse if I was under a lot of stress or not enough sleep. And over time, the intensity of the discomfort uh, became much uh, progressively more severe, more painful, uh, more frequent. Um, I eventually went to see a neurologist. Uh, he called it neuropathic pain. We tried a variety of meds. I developed drug rashes. I, and so I was like, you know, I'm just screwed. I'm just going to have to tough these out. Then uh, in 87, so seven years later, I had an episode of dim vision, my left eye, when I was roller, roller skiing in a really hot August day. Um, and it was probably about 40 uh, degrees, maybe 42 degrees uh, Celsius. So it was a very hot day. And, you know, it was going to be a 20-mile a, uh, uh, rollerblade that I was going to do. And five miles into it, I couldn't see out of my left eye. Uh, so that was pretty disturbing. Got, got a big workup. Uh, saw the neurologist, saw the eye doctors. No clear explanation. Uh, you know, and in retrospect, they probably could have diagnosed optic neuritis at that time. I am so grateful that they did not, because if they had, I would not have had my kids. Uh, so I'm I'm very grateful they didn't. They didn't. Um, and I went on a, a couple years later 
uh, to have my son, and then a few years after that, my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So lucky. It could have easily gone down a completely different path, mm-hmm. didn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned that the electrical face pain is worse for stress. And, and I did want to have a chat with you about the role of cortisol in the development of these sorts of diseases, uh, because I know you talk about high cortisol levels in your book. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm often telling my clients to watch their stress levels because of the impact of cortisol. Can you explain why this is so important? Well, um, you know, the s- stress is it's actually vital to life. Uh, we need stress. Um, so I need the stress of gravity uh, uh, to maintain strong uh, calcium levels, uh, minerals in my bones. If I don't have uh, gravity, my bones will dissolve and the, and the calcium minerals disappear. If I don't have the stress of uh, working, doing work, my muscles are replaced by fat. If I don't have the stress of having to learn new stuff, my brain connections wither away. So stress is, is vital to life, but so is relaxation. So is profound periods of relaxation and lower cortisol levels because that's when my cells can give the signals to do the repair and maintenance work. Uh, and so every day, uh, my brain goes through uh, cycles of repair for uh, all of the major uh, cell types and organs uh, in my body. If I am under continual stress, those repair functions don't happen. So that's the first problem with continual stress. Uh, The second problem with high levels of stress is that that will drive up the um, reactivity of our immune cells. And uh, they end up uh, releasing many more uh, pro-inflammation molecules. And these inflammation molecules basically dissolve healthy tissue. So we could go in and rebuild and replace them with, you know, uh, presumably damaged tissues with healthy tissues. So if you keep dissolving our, our healthy tissues but we don't properly replace them, as you can imagine, we are destroying uh, parts of our body. And, you know, and depending on your genes, when my immune cells are overly active, and, you know, based on my genetic predisposition, it will tell you which part of my uh, body structures are the ones that will be attacked most frequently. Uh, it, it, it's really very common, it, you know, in my clinics, uh, when I go through the timeline of people's um, health story to understand how they got into their uh, present uh, health circumstances, these high periods of stress are really very universal. I mean, occasionally there's an infection trigger. Occasionally there is a toxin exposure trigger. Uh, but really, the most common triggers are uh, severe stress that's not been appropriately uh, managed. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It's so important to go back through that timeline, isn't it? And look for it's very helpful. When it happened. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, you mentioned inflammation as well, which is also a really important thing to recognize in, in any chronic illness, but especially autoimmunity. Uh, how can we tell if we're inflamed or in danger of developing a chronic disease? Like, is there a way that we can recognize the warning signs of inflammation before an autoimmune disease kicks off? Well, the symptoms, uh, I think it can be very helpful for you just think about what, what are the symptoms that are impacting your life. <clears throat> and the symptoms that you know, if you're having inflammation in the brain, uh, the symptoms that will likely be occurring have to do with fatigue, uh, a dip in mental clarity. So people will usually uh, describe that as brain fog. Uh, it can also be experienced as irritability. And typically, we don't have any insight that we're the one who's being irritable. It's that everyone else <laughs> around us is so irritable. Yep. So, you know, typically, we, we don't uh, have that insight. So it's decreased energy, decreased mental clarity, and inability to get along with your friends and family and coworkers because they're so ornery. But, of course, the reality is it's, it's we who are interpreting all that sensory in a very uh, irritation way. Uh, another way this might be perceived uh, is uh, more pain. Uh, and that can be from uh, old war injuries. Um, uh, it can be from, like, fibromyalgia pain, joint pain, um, uh, 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 neuropathic pains, all of those things uh, are made worse when your inflammation uh, levels are, are going up. Uh, people who are on the path towards inflammatory bowel disease uh, may notice that they're having uh, more uh, urgency uh, with their bowel movements. Or people who are having problems with um, interstitial uh, bladder problems um, will notice that they're having more urgency with going to the bathroom to urinate. Uh, people are having more inflammation involving the lungs uh, will experience this as uh, more lung symptoms, shortness, shortness of breath, coughing, um, or a sense of wheeziness or tightness in the chest. So it, it sort of depends on which part of your of your structures are being attacked. Um, but if you're having more of these symptoms, uh, inflammation may well be part of that. So you yeah. know we have more recognition that uh, nearly all of our chronic diseases have as a feature of that disease uh, what we call immune dysregulation. It's just a fancy word for saying our immune cells are reacting in releasing these inflammation molecules to damage otherwise healthy parts of our body. Yeah. So it could be headaches, it could be skin, it could be hay fever and allergies. There's so many different warning signs Correct. of inflammation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we, we compartmentalize like uh, well, a lot of people do where they go, okay, well, you know, these seasonal allergies or what we call in Australia hay fever, that's just mm -hmm. affecting my sinuses. But it's not. It's a sign that the whole body is inflamed, isn't it? 
Correct. It's a sign that your immune cells are reacting when uh, they shouldn't be. Because if you're not having an infection, you, sh- you're, you, sh- you should not be having uh, immune react- reactivity. Uh, and so from my point of view, I'm looking at, okay, what could we do to help get everything quieted back down to the normal resting state? Yeah. So let's have a bit of a chat about the role of food in inflammation and, and how it affects gut health and how that kicks off everything because I know you have a lot to say about the food. Uh, and yeah. let's start with gluten, our old mate gluten, uh, and how, yeah. how does that affect us? Well, you know, so a couple of things to say about gluten. Uh, uh, gluten, if you have the genes that will that will increase the probability of having your immune cells get uh, irritated by gluten. Uh, so uh, here in America, and I assume your genetics are probably comparable to ours, uh, about 30% of individuals will have at least one copy of the genes that mean you're at risk for having uh, an abnormal immune response. Then the next thing that needs to happen is you're, you're in, as you, you have the propensity, then you have to be triggered. Uh, and that means that the, the gluten in your small intestines has somehow escaped, gotten into the bloodstream before it was properly digested down to, to the amino acids. And your immune cells said, oh, these gluten molecules are too big. They must be um, microbes. So we're going to uh, respond very vigorously and begin to uh, uh, release these inflammation molecules and to start this immune cascade. Uh, So there's a genetic tendency, and then there is a, a, a period of time where you had a leaky gut and these incompletely digested molecules got into your bloodstream. Now, once you get sensitized, you are sensitized for life. And so, you know, once gluten has become a problem, there's never undoing that. Ah, okay. Interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, so, look, you need to have that that genetic predisposition. You know, there has to be a gene issue there, and then it's triggered Obviously, there's a lot of factors that can go into that. If you, say, pass the gene test, like if you get your gene test back from, you know, your 23andMe-style company and they say that you don't have this, this issue with gluten, is that, a, is that a green light to go and eat gluten? Are there people who can eat it? Well, um, so let's say you get tested, you have uh, no copy of either genes, uh, the current thinking would be that uh, so you wouldn't have the immune reaction to gluten. Um, however, my uh, – and perhaps you'd be okay. I think it's uh, really most telling is what is the whole body response. If I've taken the test um, and there's no uh, – you don't have two copies of the gene, but every time I eat the uh, gluten-containing products – I react abnormally. Then that tells me that there is some sort of reaction that is happening that is not mediated by the known genes. Uh, Maybe it has to do with the glyphosate or the Roundup that was used as part of the growing uh, process. Maybe there's another um, molecular process that's yet to be described. 
So I'm very reluctant to tell people who come in and say, yep, you know, I've, been, I've taken the test. I, I don't have the genetic vulnerability. Yet, when every time I eat this food, I am sick afterwards. I'm like, well, then I would probably just not eat that food. Yeah, maybe don't have it. <laughs> I know. They, they want you to say it's okay, though, don't they? Correct. I think we need to, you know, um, realize that, yes, there, there are parts of medicine we have fully understand and we can explain really pretty well. And there are parts of uh, reactions that people come tell me about. And I'm like, well, I don't understand why that is. I don't have a good explanation for it. But if this is your experience, I'm not going to argue with your, with your observations. I, I may make the suggestion to avoid repeated exposure to this noxious event then. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such good advice. I think it comes back to becoming really conscious of how things are affecting your body and not ignoring, you know, just not just going on what a piece of paper has reported back to you about what you can eat. I, yeah, I think it's really important for us to always pay attention to the patterns we see in our own experiences and be willing to learn based on what we observe. Yeah. Okay, let's dig further into the food then uh, because I'm interested in picking your brain about the whole ketogenic thing as well uh, and also the intermittent fasting thing because both... Oh, it's exciting stuff. I know. Uh, both have become really, really fashionable in Australia of late and I know in, in the US as well. Uh, talk to me about why keto is so good for us, who should adopt it and how it can heal us from chronic disease. So our... Um Little mitochondria are uh, ancient bacteria from a billion and a half years ago, and they are the parts of our cells that burn either uh, fat uh, in the form of ketone bodies, sugar in the form of glucose, or protein in the form of amino acids. And they will make ATP that our cells use to help run the biochemistry of life. Uh, and the uh, mitochondria will, will prefer to use sugar, but can run off of amino acids or ketone bodies. That's given us a lot of what we call metabolic flexibility, so that based on what food is available to us, we can either run off of protein, so we can eat meat and survive, run off of plant materials, so we can eat carbohydrates and survive, or we can starve as in war, drought, famine, and burn our fat and survive. You could survive for a very long time. And furthermore, when we're burning our fat, our brains get a lot of great signals uh, for uh, repairing our brain, and our uh, hormones give a lot of signals saying, oh, it's not a good time to reproduce. So we're going to repair and maintain our body and put off reproduction for another season. So we can now hack that into modern times, say, you know what? I got a bad brain, which needs some serious repair work. So I'm going to put myself into a fat-burning state by reducing my protein intake, reducing my carbohydrate intake, and increasing my fat intake. Uh, and so now I've set off signals in my brain to repair and signals hormonally overall to not have kids and repair and maintain my body. 
uh, we had discovered that in uh, the early 1900s, it was first used uh, to treat seizure disorder. And this was before we had any anti-seizure medications. Uh, it was very effective. Uh, and it basically starved people. Wow. Huh. Uh, and that was called the water diet because that's what you got, water. <laughs> mm, I think we'd have trouble selling that now. <laughs> we'd have trouble with that. Uh, and, um, of course, so you would survive longer as you starved. And then they'd have to give you just barely enough food so you didn't starve to death. Um, and so that's what was done in the early 1900s. Then uh, there was some awareness in the 1960s that we could give people fat and a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbs, and that was a little easier. Uh, then we discovered you could use medium-chain triglycerides in uh, and, uh, coconut milk, uh, coconut oil uh, is a very... Um, uh, yummy way to get those uh, medium-chain triglycerides. And you can have a few more carbs. Yeah. And, and so in the research world, this is being studied to treat a, a wide variety of neurological problems, including Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's. I studied in the setting of MS. Uh, uh, it's also being uh, studied for obesity, uh, diabetes, polycystic ovarian disease, uh, cancers, and I believe a number of mental health issues as well. Yeah. The, the uh, downside of this is that this is a, a restrictive diet. It's difficult to do a ketogenic diet and make sure it is nutritionally dense so that you have all the vitamins and minerals uh, in the micronutrients you need. It's challenging to have enough uh, fiber to maintain a healthy microbiome. And I say it's fairly common to start a ketogenic diet, feel great initially. And I tell you, you feel really very, very good initially. But gradually over time, if you don't, if you aren't really paying attention to the nutritional adequacy, the nutritional deficiencies begin to take a toll and health declines. Uh, it's, it's sort of like the vegan diet, the uh, raw vegan diet. Uh, again, these, these, these can be healthy diets, but you have to be very, very mindful of how to do it and not create nutritional inadequacy. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, in the paleo diet, as much as I love the paleo diet, you can, you can still run into the same kinds of uh, issues. Uh, unless you're following a traditional hunter-gatherer diet followed by your ancestral tribe for thousands of generations, modern humans, we don't know how to construct a nutritionally adequate diet anymore without a lot of guidance on how to do that because we've lost connection to that ancient wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not running around to get our food either. We're not doing the exercise that was required. We're not doing the exercise. Do the food we eat is not wild. It's not fresh. It's not in season. It's not organic. There are all sorts and the packaged food we eat has been designed by a corporate food industry with food additives to create um, attraction to the food so we overconsume. Uh, it, it, we just consistently overconsume to obesity and the detriment of our health. Yeah. Without, without regard to the nutritional adequacy of the food products that they're designed to get us to overconsume. 
Yeah. Oh my God. That that's a whole other hour long podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. Absolutely. <laughs> ah, don't start me. <laughs> um, Terry, you mentioned the vegan diet briefly a minute ago, and I know you yes. went from vegetarian to eating meat again for the sake of your health. Uh, yeah. I have a. I've got some clients in the in the same position. Some are considering even coming back from a vegan diet, and I can see how hard it is ethically for them. It's really like they're reassessing everything. Uh, was it hard for you to get your head around? And how did you oh my manage to start eating meat again? It was, uh, 20 years. 20 years not eating meat for um, ethical, spiritual reasons. Um, but my neurologist had told me about the paleo diet two years after my diagnosis. So, so I was still walking at the time. I, and, you know, I, I read um, Lauren Cordain's book. I, I read... The many, I think he had 20, maybe 30 papers on his website. Um, so I, I went through them, decided the science was reasonable, had a lot of prayer and meditation, and I went back to eating meat. And this was a gradual process to get my, my body used to that again. And I continued to go downhill. Uh, so I, I love the paleo diet, but I want to be very clear to, to your listeners, it was not sufficient to heal me. Uh, now, as uh, and I'm very fond of it. I think the structured paleo diet uh, really has a lot going for it. But I'm also respectful that there are many people for whom being a vegan or vegetarian is a very important part of their spiritual identity. And so as I was writing my book and developing my protocol, uh, also one of my research assistants well, is a vegetarian for her religious beliefs. So I was like, okay, I have got to design a way for vegetarian and vegans to still be able to practice their dietary approach in a way that can still be healthful for them. I, and so I, I, I did that um, and explained you know, what I think some of the hazards are, how to address them, and how to identify when the recommendations that I gave, if they were still not getting well, uh, what they should, may want to consider for next steps, uh, and why, to, and how to go through that. Yeah. So, is it possible to heal from, you know, the kinds of autoimmune diseases that that you know, like MS, etc., rheumatoid arthritis, those sorts of things? Is it possible to come up with a protocol to heal from those whilst remaining uh, vegetarian and/or vegan? Well, uh, it's, it's more challenging. It is possible. It may require uh, a little more sophisticated testing and supplement program to do so. Um, so I, I certainly think, yes, it can be done. Um, it, and there are uh, uh, certainly uh, some uh, published research. Uh, Vijay Yadav uh, uh, did a little study using a vegan diet. Uh, and... Uh, they looked at that. Uh, interestingly enough, they did not see a, a change in MRI or uh, disability score. They did see improvement in fatigue. Uh, there's a, a couple of studies looking at vegan diets in rheumatoid arthritis uh, that were very small that did show some benefits. Uh, so I, I think it can be done, um, but you know I, I have concerns about uh, the lectin issue, I have concerns about um, 
uh, B12, uh, mineral intake, uh, uh, leaky gut, uh, low stomach acid, uh, insufficient protein. And these are things that can be addressed. But if I had somebody who was a vegan who had an autoimmune problem, uh, I, I have some initial first steps that we would do. If that was insufficient, then I would do a, a more detailed nutritional analysis to see where they're at so we could personalize the program more. And, and I, I would also uh, have an in-depth conversation about why the vegetarian or vegan. Is it for a health reason or is it for their spiritual religious identity? Uh, and if it's for a health reason, that leads to one conversation. If it's for their spiritual identity, then that, that then will, it'll be a different conversation because I'll, I'll work with them within their spiritual beliefs. Yeah, yeah, that's really it's that's great advice. Actually, it really is. I'm just going to be devil's advocate for a moment and just ask. Oh, please, <laughs> I love a bit of devil's avocado. Why do we need to turn back to food as the source of our nutrient intake? Why not just take a supplement or ten supplements? Oh, sure. <laughs> so, so. In uh, the U.S., and I assume Australia probably likewise has uh, government-listed uh, vitamins, minerals, antioxidant. What's the recommended target levels? And we uh, could, they're very low. Those target levels that are provided. Yeah, so so we have we have these target levels, and we have learned based on people who don't have a gut anymore how to use IV parental nutrition that we can keep people alive, and and we can do that. I don't know that we can get them to. Uh, robust health where they could run a marathon again, but we can certainly keep them alive. That has taught us a lot about nutrition. If you go to a nutrition program, um, we, we've learned that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of bioactive compounds that are in our food. And that, you know, let's take uh, folate. There are many uh, compounds closely related to folate that occur naturally in food that are all bioactive. Uh, and the food we eat have these compounds in a variety of, uh, um, of ranges, of fairly narrow ranges, that are all consistent with uh, the biological processes that occur in bacteria, plants, mammals, uh, and life. Uh, and so... It's getting these nutrients in the appropriate ratios that lead to optimal health for me. Uh, and every one of these nutrients that we study that I can take in supplement form have what we know as a big U-shaped curve in terms of the health impacts. Uh, zinc, for example. If I am too low on my zinc, uh, I'll develop a variety of disease states. If I am too high on my zinc, I'll develop a variety of disease states. Because if my zinc becomes too high, it creates um, uh, competitive problems that drives copper too low. Uh, and so it's this, the food, the nutrients we have, it's a very complicated interconnected web of relationships. It is way simpler and safer to get my nutrition from food than it is to get my nutrition from supplements. Because I'm far more likely to get the ratios wrong. I'm far more likely to get on the wrong side of all these interconnected U-shaped curves. But you know, if I'm eating 
you know, a lot of green plants, a lot of sulfur-containing vegetables, lots of color, my organ meat, my seafood, my uh, wild kangaroos. <laughs> you guys have a lot of kangaroos out, yeah, out yeah. there, right? We'll feed you some uh, of it when you get here in April. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, make sure you have so, it rare, though. Do not do not have it any any better cooked than rare, just to, you know, take oh, that's good experience. to know. Yeah. Good to know. So <laughs> if I get all those nutrients from food, I'll much more likely have robust health. If I start taking lots of supplements, I will eventually create imbalances. Yeah. Unless, unless it's monitored very carefully. You know, if it's monitored closely, you know how to monitor it. Targeted supplements can be very helpful for getting people uh, back. Yeah, getting them over that initial hump. like just it can be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it goes back to what you were saying earlier as well, where science and medicine don't necessarily know everything yet. So in, even in terms of what nutrient balances we should have in the body, I guess at the end of the day, nature's going to give us everything we need in the food. And, and that's because over thousands and thousands and thousands of generations, our ancestors learned they got rewarded with reproductive success when they got it right. They got <laughs> I love that. With reproductive failure when they got it wrong. And so over time, our ancestral cultures figured out how to feed the clan and what were the, the foods to be eating and what you had to not eat because it was going to kill you. And um, there's a lot of ancestral wisdom, of course, that has gotten lost. So when I talk about the paleo diet, it's not that um, I, I, I can reliably reproduce that. I have no idea what was uh, the ancestral diet in the middle of North America. You know, who knows what that really was. But I can try and reconstruct the, the principles of a lot of plants, some meat, 200 different species of plants, as many different species of meat types that I can, a bunch of organ meat, and then pay deep attention to how I respond. Yeah. And it comes back to what we were saying earlier about noticing how things make you feel, getting in touch with your body and really listening to your body, not being in your head about it. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I love that. Such good advice. Oh my God. Um, in your book, you said, uh, I'm just going to quote here. I believe the public will soon be far ahead of the medical community when it comes to understanding the power of food to reclaim and maintain health. And I love that. But with so many forums, Facebook groups, opportunities to Dr. Google, uh, there can be a lot of conflicting and frankly dangerous and ill-informed advice out there. Like I've seen people his, you know, I've seen people come back to me and say, oh, I've seen recommendations for drinking turpentine, lots of, amount, lots of amounts of salt water, like weird and wacky supplements. Uh, it's a minefield out there, but people will still sit naturally. They'll sit and Google as soon as they're diagnosed with a chronic health issue. Of course they will. So where should members of the public go for reliable and safe information that's still simple enough that they can get their head around it? Well, my book, of course, that's a great place to start. <laughs> um, you know, and I think if you can look for um, uh, authors that you trust uh, who have been writing, who uh, have been 
uh, getting trained by organizations like the Institute for Functional Medicine, uh, that will be uh, a very good place to start. Uh, there may there are probably some integrative medicine uh, societies in Australia that you could use for references. Uh, those are uh, you you want to look for what professional organizations uh, this person is with, and then you could Google to see what organization uh, uh, that will give you some reference. Uh, uh, the other thing that I like to do is say like okay, do they reference any scientific papers? And then go look at the paper in PubMed. Uh, if they don't have any papers that they reference in PubMed, uh, which is our, you know, there are millions of uh, academic papers there. If they don't ha- reference any academic papers, uh, then I'd look for another source. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Because I don't think there's any academic papers on drinking turpentine last time I checked. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, Terry, you've mentioned your book. We've mentioned your TED Talk, but I'm also excited to say that you're coming to Australia soon. Yay. Yes, I'm very excited too. Yeah, we'll feed you lots of kangaroo. That'll be good. (laughs) We have other cool things here too for you to eat. But um, you're doing two public talks, uh, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne. Uh, Plus I believe that those talks are going to be available online for people who can't get to those two venues. Uh, Can you please let our listeners know when you're in town and how to get tickets or access to your talks? So I am happy on my plane April 16th. I think I arrive on the 17th. Uh, and I believe the Melbourne event is on the 21st. Uh, and then uh, the weekend after, I'm doing a, a scientific event for clinicians. Uh, uh, and that's then. The Biocytical Symposium? Yep. That's, that's right. The Biocytical yep. Symposium. So I'll be teaching clinicians uh, how I think, which Yay. I'm so excited to be doing. I'll see you there. Yay. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and then I believe on May 5th, I'll be up in Sydney. And I will be uh, doing my uh, event for the Sydney public and then getting on the plane May 5th and come back to Iowa. Yeah, beautiful. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing you here and I'll pop links to everything in the show notes as well. Excellent. Excellent. So just finally, uh, as we close, have you got... uh, some just a snippet of advice for anyone who's in those dark moments who are in the throes of a chronic or autoimmune disease. Can you shine a light into the darkness for them so that sure. they can help? So you can help them choose life over disability. So, in two thousand seven, I thought I knew what my future lie. I uh, it was getting more and more difficult uh, to walk. Um, it was uh, pain was more difficult to control. I knew I was going to have to quit working uh, finally because uh, brain fog was so severe. I knew the end would be soon coming. Uh, And that was the summer I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. That was the summer that I redesigned and created a very specific program for my brain, for my mitochondria, that a year later my pain was under control my fatigue was gone, my uh, mental clarity was great, and I was walking uh, and biking again. So it is possible that if you will 
fully embrace diet and lifestyle as part of your program. And there's a huge difference between fully and just doing it sort of. That you too, whatever darkness that you're facing, that there's a real possibility that you could be transforming your life as well. And it's certainly worth a um, hundred days at a hundred percent. Wow. Dr. Terry Walls, you've given me goosebumps. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. Really a heartfelt thank you from me and all our listeners for everything that you've done for well, people with chronic illness. And I wish you all the best of luck in your studies in the future too. Well, you're welcome. And to all the Australians listening, come see me in Melbourne and Sydney. We'd love to see you. Yeah. And the wonderful Scott Gooding is apparently your warm-up speaker and he was on the show just a few weeks ago. So they're already aware that you're on your way. And um, yeah, I would highly encourage everyone to come and see you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Great. Thank you so much. Sometimes I still pinch myself that I get to chat with the people that I look up to in the industry and better still that I get to call it work. This interview has to be one of my all-time favorites like ever. So I hope you liked it too. Now, if you did like this episode, please take 30 seconds to leave me a five-star review. This really, really helps us to get in front of more people and get the word out that natural medicine and the right food choices can help you to heal from chronic illness. If you want more of me, head to julesgalloway.com right now. There are loads of cool resources there to help you to get your health sorted. Plus, if you're feeling tired and burnt out, or if you've been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, you can actually book in for a free adrenal fatigue planning session. It's about a 30 to 45 minute call with me, yours truly, where we map out the first steps that you need to take in order to heal. Yep, it's free, but I only do a fixed amount of them per week. So if this sounds like you, jump on the website and grab your spot now. I'll be back in a fortnight with another Tell It Like It Is episode full of juicy information that you can use on your path to better health. Till next time, stay shiny and bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.